From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Do you know what kills more women during and right after pregnancy than anything else? The answer is probably going to surprise you. And do you have a pretty good understanding of how evolution works? Well, I think we might have another surprise for you. This week on Undisciplined, we'll be joined by two researchers from vastly different fields who are both full of surprises. The evolutionary biologist and the epidemiological obstetrician, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Recently, we invited a guest on this program, and the day before we got together, she sent me an email. She had just found out who her co-guest was going to be, and she told me that she was feeling intimidated by the notion of trying to make a connection with that person whose research was so very different from her own. And she had a simple and really common sense request. She just wanted to know how I was envisioning matching up these two bodies of work. And I had to tell her that actually I had no idea. In fact, I almost never have an idea. But what I told her is that we don't always find direct connections. Not everybody walks out of our studio ready to engage in an interdisciplinary research project with the person they just met. Although that has happened. Sometimes, though, what we find are areas of connection that aren't necessarily about the research itself, but rather about process, about struggle, about success, about being a scientist in today's world. And because our goal is always to just get two really brilliant people to start a conversation, we rarely walk away disappointed. Joining us on the line from the University of Utah is Marcella Smid, an assistant professor of maternal and fetal medicine at the University of Utah and the first author on a new paper that suggests that the most common cause of pregnancy-associated death in Utah is drug-induced and that women are at greater risk after childbirth. Marcella, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you so much for having me on. Also with us on the line from Indiana University Bloomington is Amelia Randich. She was the first author on a paper recently published in Current Biology that shows the first proof that new genetic coding sequences can arise when viruses infect and replicate within bacteria, a finding that is key to our quest to better understand evolution and genetic diversity. Amelia, I'm so glad you're here with us. I'm really excited to be here. Let's start today by talking about maternal mortality. That, of course, is the inevitable Ed Sheeran, whose song A-Team tells the story of women fighting a terrible battle with drug addiction. The song originated when Sheeran visited a homeless shelter to play a concert when he was 18 years old, and he was shocked when he met young women addicted to drugs. Such experiences, though, probably shouldn't be so shocking. Not because we should be callous, of course, but because addiction is far more common than a lot of us think. That's a point backed by a recent study in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology, which found that drug-induced deaths are the leading cause of pregnancy-associated death for women in the state of Utah, with more than three-quarters of the deaths attributed to opioids. Marcella Smid, you've spent quite a bit of time studying this epidemic, and as a practicing OBGYN, caring for patients in these situations, so you knew very well what you were going after in this research, but I wonder if even then you felt a little taken aback by the gravity of the findings. Uh, You're exactly right. You know, we, we suspected that this was going on. 
So I run a clinic for pregnant and postpartum women. Um, we're the only um, specialty prenatal clinic for pregnant and postpartum women with substance use disorders here in the Intermountain West. And I'm hoping someone will soon correct me and say that there's another one because we certainly need more of a workforce. There's increasing literature suggesting that this is uh, emerging not just as a Utah problem, but as a nationwide problem. And in Utah, we're a fairly healthy state, and our pregnancy-associated and pregnancy-related mortality ratio is actually on the lower side compared to other states, but we are ranking right up there uh, with Appalachia in the drug-induced pregnancy-associated mortality ratio, and ours increased 200% 200% from 2005 to 2014. Wow. Wow. And you found, well, you found that most deaths, 80%, in fact, came after these mothers had finished their last checkup with an obstetrician. That got me thinking about what happens during the postpartum period, which is, well, it's commonly associated with depression and also with recovering from pain both of which are often thought of in connection with drug use and and relapse for people who've had addiction issues before. Are those the probable causes for the mortality that you're seeing during that time period? So the postpartum period is sort of this perfect storm for moms. I mean, I think any mom that has brought home a new baby, any parent that's brought home a new baby knows just how hard it is on everybody. It's a time of great joy, and it's also a time of great stress, and it's financially difficult. It's certainly difficult physically. Babies uh, really don't respect uh, sleeping time. And any mom that's struggling with any sort of substance use issue or mental health condition, often those things get worse postpartum. Pregnant women have this incredible ability to stop using or certainly decrease their use for any substance that that they use in pregnancy. But once that baby's out, often the coping mechanisms and the reason that that, uh, they were using in the first place kind of goes away because they're no longer physically connected to the baby. And it sets up this situation in which relapse is almost waiting to happen. And this seems like a pretty significant piece of evidence in favor of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which recently recommended postpartum care for women be extended for what is called a fourth trimester. What what would that look like and what are the obstacles to more widespread acceptance of that sort of approach to care? Postpartum period is a, such a challenging time for any mom. And then moms with substance use issues and mental health conditions really need that extended fourth trimester uh, care. In our clinic, it means that we keep our moms up to a year postpartum because we think that we are trusted with these deep, dark secrets that moms don't share with a lot of other people. And we're honored that our moms share that with us. And we continue to follow them and support them as they're adjusting to this new role in their life. And the other thing that we struggle with is insurance issues. So I think that that's been a a big barrier for us is that often moms lose their insurance when they're not pregnant. And that's one of the things that we suspect happens with the moms that passed is that they had insurance and then that went away and they were left failing in the wind. 42% of pregnant women who are insured through Medicaid in Utah are prescribed opioids for pain. And Given the perfect storm you were talking about earlier, on the face of it, this just seems like such a dangerous situation. It does speak to the fact that really in in Utah, we have been using opioids to treat chronic pain um, more so than in other states. And I think we've done things to address that, and we certainly are seeing changes in that. But that's exactly what you're driving at, is that, that we've, we've set up a perfect storm where moms are expecting opioids, and we may actually be making that postpartum period more dangerous for them by prescribing opioids. 
And yet only about a third of these women receive a social work consultation. Only about a quarter of them get mental health counseling. These are two things that could ostensibly be really helpful in identifying women who need help and and getting them that help, right? Absolutely. And so one of the things that we found was that over 77% of our moms had a mental health diagnosis, but the connection and linkage to care that was documented in the files that we had available to us really showed a gap that we're not linking our moms from the obstetric side to to mental health counseling, to treatment, to drug treatment, and that most likely contributed to, to these women's deaths. You know, you keep using the words our moms, and it's really striking to me. You're you're both a practitioner and a researcher. I think a lot of researchers use language about the people that they study that's very detached from, well, the, the humanity of those people. I guess it's hard to do that when you have to see these people face to face, and that that's probably a good thing, right? These are the women that have trusted me as their provider, and I think it. I owe it to them to tell their story. Part of this research is really to honor the women that have died so that they can tell their story from their grave and we can learn from them and we can help address the things that were lacking for these 35 moms that died. And it's honoring their death by doing this work and trying to find ways to prevent other women's deaths. That's Marcella Smid. She was the first author on a recent paper in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology that found the most common cause of pregnancy-associated death in Utah is drug-induced and that women are at greater risk in the time after childbirth when they are also least likely to be cared for by a doctor. Marcella, can you stick around for just a little bit and listen in as I chat with our next guest? Absolutely. Not a cell, not an independent organism. Don't even have my own metabolism. I only reproduce myself by taking over cells, then I bust them apart. The ones that you feel well. Okay, so that's the virus song from a video by the sort of internet famous science teacher Glenn Wolkenfield, a science teacher at Berkeley High School in Berkeley, California. Wolkenfield's cheesy song helps explain how parasitic viruses known as phages spread their genes as weapons. And that's a common metaphor for explaining what phages do. But according to the research of my next guest, bacteria aren't just the victims here. They might, in fact, be cultivating useful DNA sequences from viruses in order to evolve. Amelia Randich, the idea that brand spanking new bacterial genes can arise from phage genes, well, it's not a new idea, but it's never been Observe. So to do that, you went looking for genes and bacteria that are the result not of mutation-driven evolution, but rather of a phage. And you focused in on a phage gene called SPMX. Was there something that immediately jumped out to you about this gene that made it a good target for exploration? To, to be fair, it's actually the opposite. I study the evolution of bacterial morphology, and the gene I was studying happened to have domain, a portion of it, was highly related to phage genes. And we were wondering why that was. We had already been studying this one gene that had important roles in the bacteria we were studying, and we wanted to figure out where this gene could have come from and what its relationship to phage really was. Oh, wow. So, okay, so like you're, th- you had already identified this as an important and interesting gene. It wasn't that you were looking for a phage that was in- incorporated. It was that you were spending time with this gene and you were like, this is a cool gene. Yeah. So what you found is that this gene, also called SPAMX, it's not just a horrible 
invader and it's not even just an innocuous hitchhiker riding along in the bacteria's genetic wastelands it plays an important function in the gene you knew this going into this project can you talk about what that function is so we've been investigating SPAMX as a morphogenesis factor. So we study bacteria that grow for stecae or stalks. So these are appendages. So it's basically like as if E. coli had arms. And basically this SPAMX protein localizes to where the stalk is going to grow. And what our work seems to support is that it recruits other proteins that are necessary to grow the stalk and elaborate on it. We were previously interested in the subject because we have various genera of bacteria that move where the stock is, and SPAMX would move where the stock was going to go. So we knew it was playing an important role in dictating this change in morphology. And just to be really clear here, I mean, this is a gene that's necessary for this specific bacterium to exist, right? It's a little bit more complicated than that. We're actually still trying to figure out exactly what SPAMX's ancestral role is. We don't really know why the bacteria grow the stalks. We think it might have to do with nutrient acquisition and stuff. But SPAMX has evolved to have a function in growing stalks in at least this one group. And we think, actually, it's my pet hypothesis that it also has the same role in the other bacteria we're studying. It's just harder to dissect it because of the way that the proteins interact. I think the weirdest thing for us is, like, how could it be using this toxic domain to do these morphological processes that we knew it did? What happened here is this bacterium did this sort of if you can't beat them, join them sort of thing. And the implications here are pretty profound, I think. Now that we've identified this, and and again, this is the first time that scientists have observed this. It's long been theorized, but this is the first time that someone has observed this. Do you think that we'll start finding it in other bacteria and maybe other life forms as well soon? Yeah, I think We kind of get this at the end of the paper. So kind of like what you started with, what you assumed we'd done is that we'd gone out and looked for phage genes and bacterial genomes to see what they were doing. That's what you could actually do now. Like this is a special case where because the phage, it had a different role in bacteria, but it was still using its interactions with the bacterial wall. The domain was conserved over time and the signal is still there. So the sequence similarity is still there and we could we could pinpoint that it came from phage. And I think there's probably many other cases like this. So you could look at phage genomes and you could look for genes that have very similar sequences to phage genes in bacterial genomes and then see what they're attached to, see what they're doing. And that bacteria have been sculpting new genes for their new traits as bacteria from genetic material from phage, definitely. The problem is is that if the function of the gene is too different, you'll lose the signal over time. You might lose the very signal that would tell you it came from phage. This feels like it impacts a lot of the ways that, well, at least I've come to understand evolution. If this sort of code sharing is indeed widespread among bacteria, would it necessitate in your mind a pretty significant shift in the way that we talk about evolution? think so. I, I think that, like, like you said before, that this is long theorized to be the case. We just didn't have a really good example of bacteria using a phage gene for a core purpose. So there, there's many examples of bacteria. They use parts of the prophage as weapons against each other, or they use them as weapons to fight eukaryotes. Like that's been pretty well known, but those sorts of domestication of phage genes are usually only within species, like certain different strains of salmonella, for example, will, will have this or they'll carry it around in mobile elements. And this is from, from what I understand and in terms of what I looked into, the first case where we see this phage gene being incorporated at the root of a, a really large bacterial order. So this is like something that happened a billion years ago, right, and became a really core part of how this bacteria grows 
So it's more like a proof of principle of a long-held theory. He's got to feel pretty good as a researcher to be able to add that step. I mean, to be able to take something that people said, yeah, we think, we think, we think, and to be able to say, actually, I think we know. Yeah, it, it does feel good. And although, I mean, as a nerdy scientist, I think for me, you know, you want to know more. Like, I want to know where the rest of the gene came from. And I want to know the exact mechanism for the acquisition. Like, was this just a piece of broken down fade DNA that was just somewhere in the genome that got picked up by accident? There's so many ways that this could have happened. I mean, we were able in this paper to draw the connection between this domain of Femex and phage genes and what happened to make it not toxic anymore. But we really don't have an idea of the of exactly what happened. And we, we might never know, right? It requires signal in the genome. That's Amelia Randich, who was part of a team that recently demonstrated for the first time that bacterial phage genes aren't just invaders. They can also be incorporated by bacteria for core cellular functions. Amelia, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Sound good? Yes. Okay, then, Amelia, this is physician and researcher Marcella Smid. And Marcella, this is molecular and evolutionary biologist Amelia Randich. It's so nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. Marcella, I found it interesting that when the University of Utah sought to convey the gravity of these findings, it did so by partnering with the journalist Stephen Dark, whose article Deadly Cocktail tells the story of your research through the experiences of one of your patients named Stephanie. And Amelia, when you wanted to convey your research to a larger audience, one of the ways you did it was through a Twitter thread. One of the ways I wanted to start this conversation today was to ask what you feel like your responsibilities are as as very serious scientists when it comes to storytelling. One interesting thing about this question is the immediate response is that do we have a responsibility for storytelling besides communication to the general public? There's also the sense, and I think this is implicitly valued but not outwardly valued in the science community, is science communication among scientists. So I find that as an interdisciplinary scientist, I am constantly trying to figure out ways to tell the story to the various fields that I'm part of to make it interesting. And as a scientist on Twitter, I think a lot of my goal is trying to pull people I follow and who follow me who are an evolutionary biologist and molecular biologists and microbiologists kind of together into a conversation so that the science gets better. For me, I appreciate being a clinician scientist because that's where my ideas come from. It was really the patients that drove me to doing this work. And so for me, the story of why this is such a problem comes directly from our our moms. And I think that Stephen did such a great job telling Stephanie's story. And to convey this research to the public, I think what's really important is to connect that everyone has a mother. I mean, until maybe the Spamex stock gene is able to be modified, no, we don't grow in a test tube yet. And our moms struggle with very similar things, just like these moms struggle with. And so our moms are more similar than they are different. And so I think telling the story through the eyes of a, of a mom that I know is the best way to convey it to anybody. I really love that you, you connected it with the theme of everyone has a mother because that is one way to connect our work is like origins, right? Like what is the origin of maternal mortality in postpartum? And then f- for my work, mine is an ancient story of origins, right? And in this case, the gene's mother is a virus instead. 
But I was also thinking about how in the article, Deadly Cocktail, one thing that you talk about with addiction is its genetic underpinning. Almost a sense that a lot of people with addiction aren't just suffering from bad choices the way society thinks, but that they're also living within a context, a biological context that makes them much more vulnerable to specific outcomes during pregnancy. Well, and that's why your work is so important is we need to know where we come from. And we're all kind of drawn to know where we come from. And and I think that that's part of the story is that we, we all have an ancient story and we yeah. evolved to survive the context. And that context may look very different than Utah 2019. Yeah. That story goes back millennia. And we aren't just snapshots in time, we are actually connected to these ancient bacteria and ancient viruses that set us up for survival, right? We're all the survivors of these bacteria that survive from the cohabitation with, with viruses. And I think you're exactly right that part of this work is to spread the information that any kind of addiction is half genetics and half environment. And so that's, a, I think, how I was going with how is our work going to get connected and you just connected the dots for me. Were there other questions that you wanted to ask each other? Yeah, actually. So one thing I wanted to talk to you, Marcella, about was um, I was really struck in your work, this deadly gap that occurs in information between a woman being pregnant and then people who are trying to give her the right advice and the right care, not knowing that she has this background, but that this gap partly hinges on a lack of trust. That, that the mother is worried that if she is too honest, her baby might be taken away. Or I mean, when you talk about how we see mothers as a social construct and how we see addicts as a social construct, the two can never go together positively, even though there's a biological reality there that a mother can be both a mother and, and an addict and that she's particularly vulnerable. I was really interested in knowing what are some ways that you see this gap that's due to lack of trust getting much smaller? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think you've touched on a couple of really important things. We have to talk about it as a society. We don't have shame around talking about diabetes. We don't, or right. not, certainly not as much shame. We don't have shame talking about heart disease or any of these chronic medical conditions, but there's so much shame that stems from partly the medical community as well and society in general around substance use disorder and opioid use disorder. So one is to change the, the ways that we talk about it is that it's a medical condition. It's a treatable, mm-hmm. approachable medical condition. The answer is actually taking it off of the shoulders of a mom who's struggling with addiction. It's going to take time, but I think those conversations are actually happening, and I think that that's what's most hopeful about the way that this is happening is that we really are starting those conversations and that the systems are integrating. You know, this idea of fourth trimester care has come up in various environments, partly because I might be wrong about this, but America actually does very poorly in maternal death after pregnancy, correct? Part of this could be due to the opioid crisis we're going through in the country, but how much do you think it's also to do with our country's lack of supporting mothers in general, like especially if they're working? Preach, sister. Um, So, I mean, I think it's, so my, my answer for all moms is that, you know, we need to really revolutionize the way that we think about childbearing and who's going to take care of the children and what is an appropriate time to go back to work. I'm actually originally from the Czech Republic where women stay ah. home for two years after they have yeah. a baby. Certainly women are told 
implicitly or explicitly that you need to be back at work at six to eight weeks and exercise and have your body back and make sure that you're getting your baby to all the appointments and, 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 and. Yet we don't have systems to support moms to do this. Amelia, I'm wondering, when you see things in the world that don't seem to make a lot of sense, do you tend just because of what you do to try to put those in evolutionary constructs? Like, this doesn't just make sense, like, societally or politically. Like, my goodness, it doesn't make evolutionary sense, right? It doesn't make natural sense. I would say that nothing makes sense, ever. (laughs) Like, it just happens and gets collected for. Like, we're just in this constant stochastic experiment. Well, well then taking things from that perspective, it's it probably a little easier to walk around in a state of awe than knowing that, man, it, it's crazy that we even exist. Yeah, it's freaking amazing that everything works out, honestly. And so I, with, with birth, honestly, like, if you ever look at the evolution of birth, the evolution of like carrying babies in mammals is just absolutely mind boggling. I mean, I have literally seen thousands of births and I'm constantly like, why don't we lay eggs? Why do we do this? Oh, it's because of our brains. You know, it does harken back to these bacteria that bacteriophages fought wars against viruses that led to more complex bacterial creatures, right? I mean, how do you think about like the primordial soup What we have is only probably a small snippet of the diversity that probably existed at one point. We are the result of a number of successful mutations and complexity forming changes, but there are whole branches that just winked out at various points. So like the primordial ooze is is like beyond comprehension because we probably had things that aren't related to bacteria or archaea or or, uh, eukaryotes. I think all of that makes what we have precious and and worth protecting, which really speaks to the importance of Marcella's research and the connection to your research, Amelia. Yeah. My mind is blown by how you made that happen. (laughs) We're just about out of time. Marcella Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And Amelia Randich, thank you. Thank you. It It was a great pleasure to participate in this. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. We recorded today's episode from the studios of KCPW in Salt Lake City. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.